Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, welcome to a very special episode this week. First, I wanted to thank those of you who have stuck around for the last 10 months and have supported the evolution of this show. Honestly, without you guys, I don't think this podcast would still exist today. As I type this right now, we have officially reached 50 followers on the podcast. Following the release of this episode, I'm going to be taking a short break for a few weeks, and once I return, the episodes are going to be more depth and include interviews from individuals that have responded to disaster scenes and can tell their first-hand account of what a man-made disaster does to the surrounding community and how natural disasters can inspire and build greater coordination between those very same community members. This week is the 30th episode of Destination Disaster, something that quite honestly I thought would have taken much longer to arrive to. In honor of the 30th episode, I wanted to redo one of my most popular episodes on the show, one that I believe has a true threat of becoming the worst natural disaster in the United States. This week, we're going to take a refreshed look at the Cascadia subduction zone. This megathrust fault hugs the Pacific Northwest coastline and could one day, in the very near future, destroy hundreds of years of progress and threaten the lives of over 60 million. Now, for those of you who may not know or need a refresher, the Cascadia Subduction Zone is a convergent plate boundary that stretches from northern Vancouver Island in Canada to northern California in the United States. It is a very long, sloping subduction zone where the Explorer, Juan de Fuca, and Gorda plates move east and slide below the much larger, mostly continental North American plate. The zone varies in width and lies offshore beginning near Cape Mendocino, northern California, passing through Oregon and Washington, and terminating at about Vancouver Island in British Columbia. The Explorer, Juan de Fuca, and Gorda Plates are some of the remnants of the vast, ancient Far Allen Plate, which is now mostly subducted to the North American Plate. The North American Plate itself is moving slowly in a generally southwest direction, sliding over the smaller plates as well as the huge Oceanic Pacific Plate, which is moving in a northwest direction, and other locations such as the San Andreas Fault in Central and Southern California. Tectonic processes active in the Cascadia Subduction Zone region include accretion, subduction, deep earthquakes, and active volcanism of the Cascades. This volcanism has included such notable eruptions as Mount Mazama, Crater Lake, at about 7,500 years ago, the Mount Meager Massive, Bridge River Vent, about 2,350 years ago, 
and Mount St. Helens in 1980. Major cities affected by a disturbance in this subduction zone include Vancouver and Victoria, British Columbia, Seattle, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. Historically, one of the most well-known impacts to have occurred along this fault happened over 300 years ago. The only indication that we have that this earthquake and resulting tsunami occurred was records located in Japan that indicate this event happened and did not align with any other earthquakes that occurred in the Pacific Rim at this time. Although there are no written records for the region from the time, the timing of the earthquake has been inferred from Japanese records of a tsunami that does not correlate with any other Pacific Rim quake. The Japanese records exist primarily in the modern-day Iwate Prefecture. The Cascadia earthquake occurred on January 26, 1700 when the Juan de Fuca plate slipped, resulting in a megathrust earthquake with a magnitude estimated between 8.7 to 9.2. The sheer force from this earthquake sent a catastrophic tsunami hurtling across the Pacific Ocean and impacting the coast of Japan. The length of this fault rupture was approximately 620 miles that measured from mid-Vancouver Island to Northern California. The most important clue linking the tsunami in Japan and the earthquake in the Pacific Northwest comes from studies of tree rings which show that several ghost forests of red cedar trees in Oregon and Washington, killed by lowering of coastal forests into the tidal zone by the earthquake, have outermost growth rings that formed in 1699 the last growing season before the tsunami. This includes both inland stands of trees, such as the one on the Copalis River in Washington, and pockets of tree stumps that are now under the ocean's surface and become exposed only at low tide. Sediment layers in these locations demonstrate a pattern consistent with seismic and tsunami events around this time. Core samples from the ocean floor, as well as debris samples from some earthquake-induced landslides in the Pacific Northwest, also support this timing of the event. Archaeological research in the region has uncovered evidence of several coastal villages having been flooded and abandoned around 1700. Over the course of the last 2,600 years, the average time between these megathrust events is approximately 480 years. With the last one occurring 322 years ago, those who live on the west coast are now looking down the barrel of a shotgun, loaded and ready to destroy hundreds of years of progress. When the next megathrust earthquake occurs, we're looking at the near total destruction of communities and infrastructure along the affected coastline. While the initial quake and tsunami won't lead to a direct impact on inland cities such as Seattle, Tacoma, Vancouver, and Portland, there are faults that are located within the Puget Sound that could activate following the initial megathrust event leading to a tsunami that could affect Seattle and cities that are located within this region. This is my fear. While I don't live in this region, there are several faults that could activate and result in further devastation in the hours following the initial event. One of those faults, named the Seattle Fault, runs directly through the city and Interstate Highway 90. The Seattle Fault and the related Tacoma Fault is not the only source of earthquake hazard in the Puget Lowland. Other faults in the near-surface continental crust, such as the South Whidbey Island Fault near Everett and the yet-to-be-studied Olympia Fault near Olympia, though historically quiescent, are suspected of generating earthquakes of around magnitude 7. When the Cascadia event occurs, we aren't looking at just a simple megathrust event limited to a single earthquake and tsunami event. You just heard it. Cities such as Seattle, Olympia, Portland, and Vancouver all have additional faults that could be triggered when the Cascadia event happens. When the next very big earthquake hits, the northwest edge of the continent from California to Canada and the continental shelf to the Cascades will drop by as much as 6 feet and rebound 30 to 100 feet to the west, losing within minutes all the elevation and compression it has gained over centuries. Some of that shift will take place beneath the ocean, displacing a colossal quantity of seawater. The water will surge upward into a huge hill, then promptly collapse. One side will rush west towards Japan, the other side will rush east, and a 700-mile liquid wall that will reach the northwest coast on average 15 minutes after the earthquake begins. By the time the shaking has ceased and the tsunami has receded, the region will be unrecognizable. Kenneth Murphy, who directs FEMA's Region 10, 
the division responsible for Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Alaska says, Our operating assumption is that everything west of Interstate 5 will be toast. This is exactly why I tell you to have a preparedness plan in mind for the region in which you live. While you can't plan for when this earthquake occurs, you can plan for the after effects and the evacuation portion. For those of you who live in this region, have several evacuation plans ready in the event your primary route is impassable. These earthquakes are not going to be small. This will be some of the worst shaking that you will ever feel in your life. Remain outside, away from tall buildings, trees, and anything that could fall and crush you. Be sure that you have multiple communication methods with family members that live outside of the affected region. It's always better to have multiple redundancies in the event your first plan is not viable. Hell, write out a plan and mail it to your family as some sort of final communication if all else fails. Detail your plans and when they should expect to hear from you. Leave contact numbers of local emergency management agencies, the Red Cross, and even other family members. Geologists are predicting a near 40% certainty that the Cascadia subduction zone will slip, leading to a seismic event in the next 50 years. For many, that may calm your nerves. However, on a geologic timescale, that's just next week. In addition to the near 50% probability that an event will occur, the Pacific Northwest is considerably underprepared for a seismic event this large. A 9.0 megathrust quake is too powerful even to be measured on the now dated Richter scale. Megathrust quakes are measured instead on the moment scale. Like its predecessor, the scale is logarithmic. Every whole number increase represents an energy release 32 times greater than the whole number before it. An 8.0 earthquake is therefore 32 times more powerful than a 7.0 and a 9.0, roughly 1,000 times more powerful. I think now is an appropriate time as any that we move into the theoretical portion of this episode. Seeing as this region hasn't experienced a megathrust earthquake in over 300 years, there is no real data to go off of. So, for the sake of the scenario, I have made the appropriate adjustments from the initial episode. I want to warn you now that there will be depictions of death and injuries resulting from crush. Additionally, if you have any fears of drowning, this will also be included. So, I urge those of you who have may fears or find this type of material unsettling to please skip forward to the end of the episode. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the scenario. For the last three weeks, seismometers have been identifying several hundred foreshocks occurring along the Juan de Fuca plate, signifying that internal forces may be starting to force slip between both the Juan de Fuca and North American plates. Geologists attempt to warn local governments that the big quake all have feared may be about to trigger. However, many local city officials downplay the events and seem to brush those warnings aside. On July 4th, the worst case scenario happens. At approximately 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, a megathrust earthquake measuring a 9.3 occurs along the entire length of the Juan de Fuca plate. The immense shaking erodes beaches, triggers landslides, and tsunamis race to the shore of the west coast less than 15 minutes later. The initial wave is measured at nearly 100 feet tall and slams into the coastline with such force that it wipes out small coastal communities such as La Push, Seaside, and Port Renfrew. The massive wall of water continues down the Columbia River taking with it trees, rocks, debris, and buildings. The wave makes its way into downtown Portland, flooding out Portland International Airport, Washington to Vancouver, Washington. The earthquake triggers subsequent seismic events in Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver that register between a magnitude 7.2 to 7.5. These quakes shake for nearly five minutes and do catastrophic damage to older structures, roadways such as Highway 1 in Vancouver, Interstate 5 in Seattle, and Interstate 84 in Portland all suffer failures. Portland, Seattle, Tacoma, and Vancouver airports are rendered inoperable due to runway and terminal damage. Once the shaking subsides, a tsunami measuring at 30 feet screams through Elliott Bay and inundates the lower-lying portion of downtown Seattle. To say the Pacific Northwest has just experienced catastrophic damage would be an understatement. 
power, communication networks, water, and road networks are all significantly damaged in all directions, making it nearly impossible for first responders to aid those who need it. Emergency management personnel aren't able to communicate with outside agencies, meaning that they are unable to get a true read on what is happening and where the most damage has occurred. Citizens get to work digging themselves from the rubble and assisting neighbors until first responders are able to complete their surveys and respond. In some communities, community emergency response teams begin activating as they are unable to communicate with the emergency operations center. Instead of sitting back, those teams begin surveying their neighborhoods, cutting utilities that may be leaking, and triaging those who were injured. In Portland, the water finally begins to recede, taking with it buildings not built to updated codes, chemicals, and those unable to swim. The small coastal towns that dot the coastline between Oregon and British Columbia have been completely decimated. Many, not having enough time to seek higher ground, are captured in the wave as it sweeps through the surrounding landscape. Further inland, cities such as Seattle look as though a bomb has been dropped. Many older buildings that hadn't been retrofitted to meet new building codes collapse, taking with it surrounding structures, causing immense collateral damage. The waterfront is flooded, and Pike's Place has been completely demolished. Once the shock finally begins to lift, emergency management and first responders begin doing their best to fan out and obtain a quick read on the damage. The president, having just been notified of the near-total destruction of the Pacific Northwest, immediately issues a major disaster declaration, activating hundreds of federal resources to begin responding to the affected areas. All federal agencies activate their disaster response components and resources begin funneling in. The Department of Health and Human Services activates disaster medical assistance teams to begin setting up operations in Idaho, the least affected of the states following the disaster. Teams from all over the country begin arriving and coordinating with their respective teams. Stateside, the governors of Washington and Oregon activate National Guard units not affected by the earthquakes and tsunami to begin responding to aid and search and rescue operations. Specialized search and rescue teams and structural collapse respond and begin the slow, arduous process of digging through the rubble of the collapsed structures in an effort to rescue those who may have survived and recover those who unfortunately lost their lives. Due to the catastrophic damage to the interstates and highway systems, agencies are forced to use smaller roads leading to delayed response times and inadequate resource funnels. Other methods, such as helicopter and boats, can only travel so far, limiting the response even further. Within a week, search and rescue teams from all over the world are now on scene. In Canada, the Department of National Defense coordinates the response to the affected areas in British Columbia. While the damage, earthquake-wise, is not as bad as the damage that has occurred in Washington and Oregon, the tsunami damage as a result of the earthquake that occurred has completely inundated the Isowista Peninsula and Tofino. Search and rescue operations begin here, but within a week, response teams transition into recovery after damage surveys conclude that no one could survive the immense wave that swept onshore, destroying every building on the coast. Within the Salish Sea, Victoria is sideswept by the tsunami as it fans out, impacting the San Juan Islands, Altfield, Oak Harbor, San Defuca, Ebby's Landing, and Port Townsend face a significant impact as a result of the tsunami. The response to this disaster would be something that the world has never witnessed. It's incredibly hard to fathom the response and recovery phase that would take place following a disaster such as this. Luckily, the emergency management personnel and coordinating agencies have developed a playbook, dubbed the Cascadia Playbook, that tracks all necessary actions that need to take place one hour following all the way to two weeks following the event. As we round out the 30th episode for this season, I think it's important that we outline the necessary items that you should have if you live in this area and could potentially be trapped for up to two weeks following this major disaster. Be sure that you weren't one of the estimated 25,000 fatalities that could perish as a result of this catastrophic natural event. As with any disaster that we discuss on this show, it is important to have the base items such as food and water. This should be enough to last you and your family for up to two weeks. Luckily, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, it rains 
and during this time you could rely on said rainwater to provide you with supplemental water resources should you run out of your initial supply. As a reminder, one gallon of water per person per day is the rule when it comes to disaster supplies. Fill bathtubs, sinks, and any free unused containers to ensure you have adequate access to these resources. For food, canned goods can have an extended shelf life and take up little room in the pantry. Each time you go to the grocery store, pick up a can or two of soup and protein to ensure that your bodies have the caloric intake necessary to sustain itself. Next, power will also be out for the foreseeable future, so ensure that you have batteries or a solar charger that can safely charge your devices and won't start a fire should natural gas be leaking. Stay away from buildings that look structurally unsound and stay away from the downtown area until deemed safe by response personnel. If you can, please make your way out of the affected area and have a plan to communicate with your family to ensure they don't come out to look for you. Next, you'll want to have a first aid kit that includes a splint, quick clot, and even super glue should you have a penetrating wound or a break. Quick clot and super glue will suffice until you can get in contact with medical staff for proper medical aid. If you have a penetrating wound, you should have a tourniquet in your bag as well. However, if you do not have a tourniquet, a belt will work. If you are bleeding profusely, place the tourniquet above the bleeding wound and tie it as tight as possible. Tie it to the point where the blood is no longer flowing and then pack it as much as possible to prevent any further blood loss. There are some adhesives on the market that are geared towards medical use that I would recommend purchasing over your typical everyday use superglue. Finally, you'll want to have some form of emergency radio to ensure you can receive updates from emergency personnel on scene that can provide an update. These radios come in the form of both solar and hand crank options so batteries can be saved for lanterns and flashlights. I want to thank you all for following the podcast. I can't say it enough. Without you, the audience, I would simply be talking into a microphone for myself. I produce these episodes with the intent to help prepare the wider community that may not know exactly how to prepare. Following this episode, I will be on break for at least two weeks to rest and generate new episodes. If you have a topic that you would like me to cover, feel free to DM me on both Instagram and Twitter. Also, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to the show to ensure that you stay updated with the latest releases. Until next time, this has been Destination Disaster. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.